So this is going to be an interesting podcast. Somebody that has a lot of life's experience, even though he's a very young man, and he's probably achieved more in his lifetime than any of us will achieve in ours. And when I talk about life experiences, I'm talking about the triumph of winning and how to deal with what life throws in the way. So welcome, David. I have, of course, my co-host Daniel here with us. I think we're going to have an interesting conversation here. Um, if you can give people just a little bit of background, I know you're, you're here with us from sunny Jamaica, so we're, we're totally envious. We'd love to have the sun shining on our, on our backs. And uh, what a nice place to be during lockdown. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to, it's actually raining today. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I've got a rain day, so maybe that's fitting in with, with, with speaking to you from, from Ireland. Sure. Uh, so, uh, but you know, it's still 28 degrees centigrade. So now, yeah, so I, I'm currently out in, in Jamaica. Uh, how I ended up here is a very long story of over 20 years in sport, competing on the British rowing team, British cycling team, running athletics, karate, skiing, bobsleigh, and uh, then a mixture of uh, six spinal surgeries, being diagnosed with life-threatening tumors, and then ultimately paralyzed. So can I just come around again? So you're not just a rower, but you've also, you've also competed. And did you compete at top level in other sports as well? Yeah, so I, I represented Great Britain in four sports. And then I also competed in about another three or four sports at sort of county, sort of Scottish team type level. So wow. I, I guess I always say to people, I've never been that great at one of them. I've just been very fortunate to be an all-rounder. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And can I ask, what age are you? Uh, 40, almost 43. And you've achieved all of that. It's incredible. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, 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 you know, sometimes you see the sporting system works where, you know, people get picked up at a really young age. They go through the talent ID programs and they, they spend their whole life in one sport, which is, which is great. I would have loved to have done that as well. Uh, so I, but, um, you know, and they go on to have great success. But for me, I guess my philosophy in life is about experiences and creating memories. And, you know, we can delve a little bit more into why I'm so passionate about that. But that's what I learned about whilst I was fighting for my life in a hospital bed. And I looked back and thought, I've got all these experiences of different sports. Like I know what it's like to go down a bobsleigh track at 80 mile an hour, but I know it's also like to fight in a dojo in Japan, but also to, to cycle with the British cycling teams. So I have like created all these experiences. So when you're taking that last breath in your life and you play mm. your life back like a movie, I, I think it's, it's been quite cool to experience. But it, so seems, it seems you're very intuitive though. Like to go one down one route, nothing, there's no, no logic in that. It doesn't, it, it, there's no common sense in it. So there's something, obviously there's an intelligence there. And I would put it down as kind of what came into my mind when we were talking with Steve Jobs, going to do a course on calligraphy, never knowing where that was going to end up. But then when he was designing the Apple Mac or whatever, he was able to bring that in. And it was almost as if life was guiding you in a particular way. And, you know, whatever direction you were taking, you were kind of going with the flow and it's really kind of, I don't want to say the word worked out, but it's been some, some great positives. Yeah. I think, you know, I don't regret anything in life uh, for sure. Cause everyone that I've met, the greatest things I've taken from every sport is probably friendships and relationships. They're, they're the greatest thing. And every person I've met at some point in my life, 
has actually helped me stay alive later on in life, which kind of is really crazy. And I, I, I sort of thought if I hadn't done a certain sport, then I wouldn't have met a certain person who introduced me to a certain physio 20 years down the line who actually helped with my paralysis and stuff. So it's, it's really weird. And, and I guess what I've done is I've, if I've ever felt resistance, then I've intuitively said to myself, okay, something's not right here. I, I need to change my path. And maybe this is not the path I'm meant to be on. And I've, I've just listened to my body. I've, in a lot of ways, maybe like what the alchemist says about, you know, those omens. And I've sort of had this goal of where I want to get to in life, but I very much listened to the signs that are all around me and, and directing me. And to bring it down to the, the experience. So when an idea comes into your head, how do you know, what feeling do you have when you know it's one you should follow versus one you should not? Yeah, I, I think, well, I think I get that release of dopamine. So I feel that sort of dopamine, that anticipation of going for something. And you, you sort of feel this in, intrinsic motivation to go and, and, and chase it. It's not about an external factor. It's not about anything like a, whether it's a medal or anything else. It's, it's coming from within. It's something that inside of me that just thinks, yeah, I want to go in that direction. And I don't feel resistance and it feels just natural and and I just go with the flow and I just think, okay, let's just see where this is going to take me. And I understand it's probably quite difficult for a lot of people to live their life like that. But when you're diagnosed and told that you might die, and then you go on to really fighting for your life, at that point, I guess you can either learn or you don't learn. And for me, I, I really, I learned a lot about myself. I had to have some really difficult conversations uh, with myself lying in, in an ICU ward with people next to me dying, people being told, you know, they had a year to live and then myself, you know, struggling to breathe and struggling to, to even move and then come to terms with it. And at that, you have a very difficult conversation with yourself at that point about, okay, life is, it's not a dress rehearsal. We have this one chance and really what is, what's your personal legend? What are you passionate about? What are your values? And, and going after that and not being scared to go after that. And for me, I guess, a lot of ways, I, I've been lucky that I've been able to sort of follow that sort of dream, whether it be in sport or studies or, or traveling. I, I've been very fortunate amongst all the misfortune that I've been able to, to follow that path. Two questions, and then, then I'll pass you on to Daniel. Sorry there. Um, but one question is, you've achieved so much. Do you think in hindsight, and I know hindsight is all very well, do you think it might have contributed to becoming unwell? And number two, just a small bit of history about when you got the news or what you were feeling. Because I think as men, I haven't been to a doctor in 20 years until I split my head. I live in a cottage and I ran through it and it's got a low and I had to get four stitches. And other than that, I'd have never been to a doctor. So as men, we don't tend to want to go to the doctor. We don't want to, to kind of do any of these things. So a little bit about just when you were achieving and you were really high performance, which how did you, do you feel, did that in any way contribute to it? Do you have any, you know, regrets about pushing yourself or should you have done it a little bit differently? And then just dealing with, with the news. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's a, that's a really cool question. And for me, my, um, I remember my first symptom really, really clearly. So 
when I was 17 or 18, I, I sort of fell in love with athletics and I was pursuing this, this dream of athletics. And I think at this point, it, this is when sport walked a delicate line between passion and obsession. And, and it was very much, I was passionate about it, but it was becoming a bit obsessive. And one of the very first symptoms I had was I started going to the bathroom around about 20 to 30 times a day. And then I, so I, I lost bladder control. Then I started to lose sexual function. Now that mm. should always be an alarm bell for any yeah. man. But as a man, you're kind of like, oh, I'm not going to talk to anyone about that. Then you sort of think, well, everyone's, is this just being an athlete? I was training six times a week, three, four hours a day. I was punishing my body as a 400 meter runner. And I, I remember going to a doctor and sort of saying, look, I'm having these issues. And he's like, oh, it's probably mental. Don't worry about it. Just don't think about it. So I just left and thought, well, it's just mental. Uh, I'll just push on. And what I ended up doing is I actually tipped over the scale to become more of an obsession. And what I did is I then hid in sport. So for every symptom that the tumor was causing, as the tumor was in my spinal cord at C4, so it was crushing the nerves. And there's a high chance I was born with the tumor because before the age of five, I'd also had five sets of convulsions where I'd stopped breathing in my sleep and had a seizure. I was rushed to hospital. I was told I, would, uh, I was possibly going to die. Then I was told I had epilepsy. They put me on epileptic medication for all of my childhood. So I'd had a lot of trauma as a baby and I'd also been born with palatases with, my, with club foot. So I'd actually almost had my, both of my legs amputated. So I'd, had a lot of, so I'd had a lot of trauma early on. And I think that early on trauma also felt a lot of resilience. But what it did do is it, Sport became a, it became an outlet and it became somewhere where I hid. So it definitely became a, an obsession rather than a passion. But also what it did is it, it masked a lot of the symptoms from the tumor. Because I got so fit, because I got so strong, then it, it masked a lot of the normal symptoms. And also what it did is it also provided a, a, a reasonable solution for any injuries I was having. So I was having back pain, I was having wrist pain, I was having you know, problems sexually, I was having urine problems, bowel problems, but it was also you're training too hard, you're doing too much exercise, you're maybe not stretching enough. So there was always a reason, and every physio that worked with me throughout the years, of course they're not going to think I have a spinal cord tumour, these are so rare, you're not going to, that's not going to be like that. So in 2010, I was in sort of 19 sessions a week. And what was happening is we were tracking heart rate, we were tracking sleep, we were doing a lot of physiological trackers, and they were really flagging up that there was something wrong. Blood tests coming back that something were wrong. So then initially what the Olympic doctors did, rather than just putting me in an MRI scan right away and scanning me, we went through all these tests. So they tested my Eurodynamics, which was, which was an horrendous experience, having, having your cameras put, put into your bladder and, and into your bowel. And uh, yeah, I've, I've sort of blocked them from my mind. But um, then I had the oh, MRI scan. And the emotions that go on when you're holding, you're like, well, that can't be me. I don't smoke, I don't drink. I'm this healthy athlete. I'm present as this fit guy. Young guy. Yeah, young guy. I was 32 at the time. So, and let alone at that point, I didn't realize that that first diagnosis was the start of what was going to be a fight for the rest of my life. And there was a question along that journey that I said to one of the neurosurgeons. This was probably after my third diagnosis. I said, Is sport causing this? 
Is, is there, you know, because tumors are an increased blood flow, is there something that I'm doing to do with lactates and carbon dioxide and all these chemicals that are going inside the body that might be causing it? And the answer was that no one really knows, but probably not. But then I was faced with a question as well, is do I live trying to let the tumor define me uh, or do I live on personal legend, which is to for and move my body and get into flow states and live really on out of that comfort zone. And for me, I would rather, you know, I would rather, I would rather live ten years doing what I love than live thirty years of a life that I'm just sat around doing doing nothing. It's a great quotation. I'll pass you to Daniel. <laughs> That's. Yeah, well, we, we I, I thought at some point here, David, that we were going to talk a little bit about your your pre-cancer uh, and pre-surgery time, that that was maybe a little bit easier. Than, but uh, I knew some about some of your background, but now I can hear was you kind of lived with this your whole life in, in, in a way. You've, you haven't had it easy even when you were, were younger. So I am, I am fascinated by a lot of things here. And one thing is, how do you, or is it, or do you have to, how do you keep such a positive mindset? It must be, I mean, borderlining to impossible. I mean, to be honest, how do you with all these, because it's not just one time, it's not two times, it's continuously and still you don't know what the future holds. How, how are you able to maintain that mindset? I think we have, we have, might've lost. I, I think that's, David, would you turn off your video, please? Uh, yeah, I got, I got we'll, we'll just do the audio. Okay, I'll turn off mine, yeah. Great, great stuff. Can you hear us there? Okay, yeah. Excellent. Did you yeah, get so, Daniel's question? Yeah, you yeah. did. So I, 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 got the, I got the question. I apologize, the internet, because I'm in the bush here in Jamaica. So there's no, we're all, we're all envious of you. We, we don't but, love um, to be there. I think... <laughs> So I, I think as an athlete, I have a relationship with pain. So and, and in one ways with the tumor, I've never known what it's like to feel really good, if that makes any sense. So I, this is like a normal feeling for me. So I've probably never had a good night's sleep my whole life uh, because of the tumor. Every time I lie down to go to sleep, it presses on the, on the, the neurological system of where it's positioned i'm up and down bathroom five six times an evening i'm constantly moving so i i would say argue i've probably never had that perfect night's sleep uh, ever um and i think also the relationship with pain is that i kind of when i feel pain it's almost i know i'm alive and i love the feeling of pain from sport so it's almost fed into to deal with the cancer and the paralysis. Also, the cancer and the paralysis is also fed into sport. So when I'm doing sport, I'm very grateful to have that opportunity. Every time I turn the pedals in the bike, I'm like, I'm so lucky to be here. I'm so lucky to be alive. So that feeds that. And then when I surgery, everyone's got different terminology and language they like to use around choosing cancers. I, I like to see it as a fight. I take myself back to the days I did karate and I go straight to my breathing. I've, I've done it from the very first surgery. I remember climbing onto the anesthetic table. And the first thing I noticed is my mind was racing with all these thoughts of what if I don't live in my breath, breath went out of control. And then I realized at that point that 
thing that these people take away from thoughts and my, my conscious thoughts, even the anesthetic injury, they're about to cut me open and I'm giving my life to them. I can still be controlling my thoughts at the moment. So I just, I remember in, in the dojos when I was seven, eight year old, you know, martial arts was very much about control, emotional regulation, control. And I forgot all that, realized that, that I'd actually learned that as such a young kid. And, and then that first surgery, I went back to that. I thought, okay, let's just control the breathing. I didn't really know what I was doing in, until probably about six months ago when I started reading, uh, when I read Patrick's book and James Nestor's. But then I was like, ah, okay, this is what I've been doing all these years. But um, David, I, I, took, I took control of my breath on the anesthetic table. Will you tell yeah. us what you did? And will you tell us just your mind yes. was racing at the time. So obviously your, your breathing was, how was your breathing when your mind was racing? What did you do intuitively? What, what did you feel was right at the time? Yeah, yeah so when, when I felt my brain was racing, I was like, well, these, this might be the last thing I ever see. Are these going to be the last people I ever see? What if I die? I've not done all these things I wanted to do. Then what I felt is I started to go into a really high panicked state. And I remember my karate instructor saying that if you go into that state when you're in a fight, you're going to get beat because you can't make reactions. You, can't, you don't have emotional regulation, so you need to control your breathing. So he used to just get, he just said, look, again, through the nose and then long exhales and just control, just go into a parasympathetic state and just control your body. And then he says, then you, you're in more control. And that's exactly what I did. I just was like, okay, slow inhales through the nose and just long, prolonged exhale. And I just felt at that point, everything just slowed down. It was like the nurses slowed down. And it was like, almost I was having this outer body experience and then I just went into a very calm state and I was, I was talking about the weather and the sports and the anesthetic doctors. And, and I asked a question when I came round to a, a psychologist, I said, does anyone, has anyone ever studied the human mind under severe life-threatening surgery to see what's going on under, under imaging to see, obviously we don't have conscious control, but the subconscious mind must be aware that they're cutting you open. So then I started to realize, okay, every surgery I, that I go into now, I have to go into it in a parasympathetic state. And I, and I start working into it. As soon as I'm diagnosed, which might be three, four weeks before a surgery, I start preparing from that moment uh, to go into that surgery to make sure that my body is in a, in a very calm state so that it's not reacting under anesthetic. What do you do specifically then? Is it do you do it uh, every day a, a certain breathing routine then and who has told you about that or are you or have you done it intuitively like from from the past or how does that work and initially daniel i did it intuitively so initially i just did it intuitively i just knew that if i did long exhales that i was calm i didn't understand the science behind it i just just knew intuitively that's what happened and then i was after 2016, in 2016, I was paralyzed and I, I woke up in the ICU and I couldn't move from the neck down on one side of my body. I went into a really high panic state in the intensive care unit and my body started to go into seizures and stuff. And again, I went to my breathing. But what happened after 2016 surgery was that I spent six months in hospital. I was transferred to a spinal hospital. I, I spent probably another six months in a private care and what really happened during that time is that I wasn't aware of the Kruber Ross stages of grief and I'd gone straight to denial. 
and I didn't realize what was coming. And I eventually ended up at my lowest point where I didn't want to live anymore because I'd, I'd lost this identity. People were having to dress me. People were having to wash me. I couldn't tie my shoelaces. And I just lost control of everything. I lost control of my breathing, lost control of my thoughts. And, and to be honest with you, I was probably lost ever since then until I spoke to a friend of mine who was working at the England football team. And I, I just sent her a message one night saying, could you just, like, I'm a bit confused about this breathing thing. Uh, could you explain it to me? And she's like, she goes, we're literally just reading James Nestor's book at the moment. She goes, I encourage you to get it and read it. So I read that book at the start of just the yeah, middle of lockdown. And then that's when I just went, ah, a light bulb moment. I remembered all the stuff. Then I ordered Patrick's book right away. Then I started listening to all the podcasts. And then I actually had a formal practice and an idea of the science behind it. And I really grasped it. And I was like, okay. And to be honest with you, for the first time in the living years of the cancer, the paralysis, this is the first time I've actually felt in control of my body and my thoughts. And I think it's purely down to understanding the breathing. That's amazing. What exactly do you do? What, what type of exercises? How much time do you spend per day doing it? Yeah, so I have a little, I, when I wake up every morning, uh, I, I go straight into my breath. So I, I do maybe five minutes just of very light nasal breathing, just long exhales, very short inhales. And I just try to calm my whole body down. After that, I set one intention for the day. And then I say my gratitude. I swing, put my feet on the floor and I just say, David, be where your feet are. That's my philosophy now that I've come up with. Just be where my feet are. And I stand up and I, and I go about my day. And then during my day, what I realized is that with the spinal cord injury and the paralysis, I've become very tight and very restricted in, in my body. So I, I've, I've lost all the function from my neck down on one side. So that includes the diaphragm on the left side. I struggle to use my breathing there. I've also now developed scoliosis of the spine because the right side's worked so hard, it's pulled the spine round. So I realized that to, to, to live my best life and actually be able to do things, I, I need to address these issues. So what I do is I'm very fortunate throughout the day that I, you know, I'm supported by Nike. So I'm a Nike athlete. So I, that's, I'm still a full-time athlete. So I get to devote a high percentage of my day to, to moving my body. So I break up my day where I'll jump on the bike. I'll cycle for a few hours. I might go and swim for a couple of hours. And then I spend a lot of the day doing stretching and working on my flexibility, Pilates and, and breathing. I don't, it's interesting. I don't really have a strict routine when it comes to the breath stuff. I just do it when I feel like I need it. And, and I, if I'm in the car and we're driving in the car for a few hours, I might just do alternative nostril breathing for the whole time I'm in the car. Or I'll do breath holds when we're sat at traffic lights and I'll just sit and challenge myself to see how long I can hold it. So I don't actually have a spreadsheet that says, okay, we're at 0800, we're doing this. I'm a bit more fluid about it and how, how I approach that. David, there's a point here that's really screaming out at me. All those people with anxiety, with mental health issues and their respiratory physiology is off. They have a racing mind. Nobody is, or very few people is helping them address their respiratory physiology. Mm. And I really find it dreadful to be honest with you. I think there's two, you know, we, we are all as human beings susceptible to a racing mind and the experiences that you have 
catapult that to, you know, to a place where none of us can imagine. But at the same time, I would love to see the medical inter intervention and psychiatry and psychology giving breathing techniques to be able to do what you did. You had a really slow, prolonged exhalation. The science is there. You stimulated the vagus nerve. It secretes a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. This causes a slowing of the heart and it activates the body's parasympathetic response. You're doing breath holds, which in turn help to stop thinking, calm the central nervous system and increase blood flow to the brain. You're also conscious of slowing down your breathing to have normal carbon dioxide. You're aware that one part of your diaphragm is not working effectively and with breathing, then you're helping to compensate with that. This is information and practice that you know about. And just as a matter of interest, even though it's not going to be scientific, but I'm just kind of, the degree to which your racing mind reduced, do you think did it drop down by 10% or 15 or 20%? Do you, would you have a fraction of which your, your racing mind, and I'm talking probably, there's probably a lot of maybe negative thoughts or a lot of, you know, that kind of, thoughts going around in circles. How much did it reduce by? And do you put it down to the very fact that you were focusing on the breath or do you put it down to the fact that you manipulated your breath? Yeah, uh, okay, so it was super interesting. What, what I realized was that through the whole time I've been in hospital, nobody's ever talked to me about breathing. Even, mm. and, and even in the spinal cord injury hospital where your mind is just like, gone off completely i remember sitting in the the room the very first day and i said to the doctors they said to me what's your goals david and i said well i want to ride for great britain again and i want to cycle across the alps and i was sat in a wheelchair at this point and they said well let's just see if you can brush your teeth on your own yes. and i and I, I was doing the toilet in my bed every day i was soiling myself i had to get bed baths mm. but i held on to that dream and every time a negative thought came in, I held on to that dream. But what really surprises me now looking back then was that actually you're working with spinal cord injury people and the physios weren't even teaching us how to breathe. It was a checklist of things, right? Can they do a transfer? Can they catheterize? Can they wash their teeth? It wasn't actually, well, let's just, let's go to the foundation of the whole system, which is the breath. And no one taught me this. And at that point, there was no surprise that my thoughts were all over the place. And then what I realized when I came out, my tumor pretty much grew straight back. And that's when it sent me off into, into a spiral of depression and, and, and huge anxiety and panic attacks. I broke down in the neurosurgery's room. I was on the floor in tears. And they just kept saying, oh, we'll get you psychology. We'll get you psychology. And I was like, well, you know, that's great, but I need to get control of the system. And trying to suppress these thoughts is not working. Like mm -hmm. I can say to myself, okay, don't think of cancer. Then all I'm, gonna do is think of, all I'm gonna do is think of cancer. So that's like, okay, where's the distractions? in a flow state. How do I get into a flow state? Well, I can't get into a flow state from a negative mind. I need to be in a positive mind and focus precedes flow. So I need to get focused, but I can't get focused because I'm constant. The narrative in my head is what if the tumor comes back? What if I get sick? What if I'm paralyzed completely from the neck down? What if I die? All these what ifs. And then I realized I need to stop giving energy to these what if bridges. But again, I can't just tell myself to do that. So what I'd find is that I kept myself busy doing things all the time, but I thought, well, that's not really dealing with it. That's just keeping busy. So then I was like, when I go to bed at night and lie down and try to go to sleep, I have all these thoughts. Well, the next, you're going to get cancer again. You're, you're going to die. 
you're not going to see 15. You're going to, and all these voices. And I was like, oh my God, how do I control these voices? And that's when I realized that the only way really to calm a, a racer mind is to focus on the breathing. It's, it's got to be the number one thing. And then if you focus on the breathing, then you get into these flow states. And so I started to, to, to try it and it started to work. The thoughts started to come, the, 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 the race of mind probably calmed down 10% to start with. Then it was about 20%. And then it was like a sort of 50, 50 battle where it was like a bit of tug of war. And I just realized, okay, anytime these thoughts come in, just recognize it and say, okay, this is a thought that's coming in. It's, it's creating an emotion of fear, mm-hmm. which is then making me feel a little bit anxious. Okay, what can I do? I can either jump on my bike and go riding, or I can go swimming, or I can maybe just sit and do a breath practice with some stretching, or turn on a podcast and, and lose myself in that. So, and then where I am at now, I would say in an average week now, I probably have three or four thoughts about cancer and about the paralysis. The rest of the time, I'm good. But that's, that's, taken, that's taken time. That's not something that's just happened overnight. I think that's the accumulation of, of so much stuff, of, of learning myself. I, I, I realized that a lot in life we're human doings, not human beings. And I thought mm-hmm. we really need to be more human being. And, and actually, you have to be a student of your body. And people will you know, invest money and, and all sorts of crazy stuff, but they won't invest in their learning a little bit about their own body. And that's where I realized I need to yeah, be a yeah, very well, much. Of it. Society has taught us how to direct all of our attention outwards. And um, it's only in the Eastern world was there some credence to bringing our attention inwards. And, you know, it's something that's increased attention is going outwards, especially mm-hmm. with modern technology. So yeah, it's it's really it's really amazing. Uh, yeah, and Dave, I'm fascinated by the fact that so the doctors never uh, talk to you about uh, breathing or breath training, but still, I saw this video. I don't know what year it was, but you were training uh, hypoxic training at the high performance center, I believe. Was that from your own like what what you felt that had to be done, or did anybody tell you about that, or how did that come into play? Yeah. So, so actually, that was my own machine. I turned up to the, the I turned up to the Olympic Training Center with my own hypoxic machine. Um, they they had hypoxic. They obviously they're you know they they have an hypoxic chamber there. But I had actually done quite a bit of research in hospital around the use of intermittent hypoxia and spinal cord injuries. And I was just trying to find even if I could find zero point zero point one percent of an improvement in a finger. That was massive. That's life changing when you're when you're paralyzed. So I, I literally tried everything. I was using transcranial direct stimulation to the brain. I was doing intermittent hypoxia. So I, I reached out to a guy at Sport and Edge and I said to him, "Look, can you can you calibrate one of your machines so I can do intermittent hypoxia? I need to be at sort of five thousand meters." And he's like, "Yeah, we can calibrate that. And we'll just give you a machine." So he just gave me a machine home to my house and I would just sit and do a minute and then take it off and do a minute and take it off and do a minute and take it off. And I, I, I did all of that. And I, I'm pretty sure it, it was hard to pin exactly what worked because I was doing so much mm. uh, at that point, but I, I definitely think it would have worked. It definitely, definitely did work. There's no doubt about it. But the problem is it's, it's such a big machine <laughs> that you just can't take it around everywhere with you. And um, then when I seen Patrick talking about doing hypoxic training, just do breath work, 
I thought, well, there's, there's the answer. I, I can do, I can get the same replication of the machine, but I don't have to carry the machine around with me. I can actually do this. Yeah. And I think hypoxia combined with hypercapnia is interesting because the hypoxia is, you know, you're, you're enabling the body to cope better with hypoxia by doing exercises to generate hypoxia. And the hypercapnia is interesting because it's helping the increased CO2 is increasing blood flow and oxygen delivery. And, um, when, when you felt it worked, what did you assess it by? Did you have more mobility or did you, what way did you feel better? Mm -hmm. So we, we did a few tests. We did like walking tests to see if my walking was improving. So we, so how far you can walk in you know, five minutes and all the little markers were going. Mm. But for me, for me, I guess the objective tests were great, but it was more of like a subjective thing just on feeling like I would, I would maybe notice my index finger moving a little bit more, or I would feel that I was getting less spasms or I had a little bit control, a bit more control over the bathroom. Uh, there was just little things where I was like, actually, you know what, Th this is, this has been a very, very minor improvement, but, but it's huge. And I feel mm -hmm. that. And then that would be backed up with the tests that the physios would do. They'd see a little bit of increase in, in mobility or a bit of an increase in, in grip strength. But, for me, it's, it's something that I think that the, the, the gains are so, so small that you just don't notice them acutely. And again, that it's, it's so hard in this modern world where we want everything now that for improvements with a spinal cord injury, the stuff I do today might give me an improvement in 10 years from now. And so it, it's, it's been disciplined to know, okay, I need to, I need to stay focused. I need to keep focused on all these little things. And, and that's pretty hard in a world that's full of distractions. And that's one of the reasons that I think that I thrived in Jamaica because there is no distractions here. It's, it's about just disconnecting to actually connect. And that's been mm. pretty important, I think, in, in my rehabilitation, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. It's probably been one of the biggest uh, improvements I've had in my health is actually just being here and living off the land and, and being connected to my body. Mm. And it's nice that you see that your, your progress is not just on one element. You talked about mental, spiritual, emotional, emotional, and physical. And it's almost that you're going back to basics. You know, our ancestors were growing up in a very rural and agricultural environment connected with the land and connected to nature. And uh, we're totally the absolute opposite. So in many ways, the human species, we haven't really evolved as a race. And sometimes taking that break out can be very important. And yeah, I, you know, and I'm guilty. I'm stuck in the rat race like everybody, like everybody else. And it's very important that we do take time out, you know, even if it's just a half an hour to an hour a day to get out into nature. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you know where I really seen that, Patrick, it was really interesting. In 2019, I, I had seven weeks of radiation therapy every day, and they were sort of zapping my spinal cord every day. And I went down into the radiation, and there was everyone from kids as young as two all the way to mm. people in their 80s. And, you know, people are like, I met friends who, who probably won't be alive now, and I met other ones who came through. But what I've seen is there was actually a lot of happy people, and it's not what I thought it was going to be. And there was a lot, there was a good energy, people were happy. And then I would leave the radiation center, come up onto the street, and everyone was unhappy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's, it's, that's but it's a paradox. But it's a paradox, I think, that, David, that 
when you're close to death, you're, you're maybe closer to life. But uh, uh, while the rest of us that you know, are always chasing something uh, are just somewhere, you know, not appreciating life like you are. And I, I think that's just, uh, I think it's, uh, I wouldn't say impossible, but very difficult for us normal people to, to be in your mindset and be appreciative of those, those things. But, it's, uh, but I think um, that's, that's, uh, that's a fantastic mindset that you have. And also to be able to appreciate the little things, but still when you were in the hospital to have those big goals of, of uh, cycling the Alps and so on, uh, have, have, have those goals helped you uh, as well uh, uh, to kind of hang on to um, a positive mindset? Yeah, they, they, they drove me uh, for sure. And I think with the, I, I started studying positive psychology, which was a real big game changer for me. So I, I, I read a lot of books on positive psychology. I did some courses on it and that really, it really changed again, my value system. So I went back and I, I changed my personal philosophy around about trying to win an Olympic gold medal. I then moved it to be like, you know, I just want to move my body. I just want to create these experiences but I also realized the importance of goals and actually setting these goals to, to get out of bed every day. So I was, you know, getting those releases of dopamine and, and, and wanting to chase something. So I think what that did for me is it, you know, I've got goals now that I want to go and do an Ironman and, and I want to compete again at the world championships and stuff. And they, they get me feeling like they get me going and I reconnect with my athletic self. But I try to do it very mindful that, that I stay as a human being, not a human doing. I don't just want to become a robotic athlete again, which is all about, about just chasing those medals. And I realized that, okay, there is going to be days that are hard. I accept them. There will be the negative thoughts that come in, but ultimately having those goals is, is keeping me in, in a positive frame of mind. It keeps me less focused on the spinal cord injury and the paralysis and the cancer and more focused on, on living my life and, and performing. But for me, it's not about finishing or make or crossing the line in first place it's about making the start line and that's really changed how how I go about my day and how I see things and and ultimately when when I was in radiation I think that's when I I really realized I was alive like I really was like I'm I'm alive I'm living and and I've had those thoughts in hospital when I've been in ICU when I, I I'm, the last time I was in ICU I couldn't open my eyes for two days because the pain was so bad and I remember getting out of hospital and my dad put a bike at the end of my bed and was just like, look, that's the goal. doesn't matter if you get on it for two seconds, that's the goal. So every morning I'd wake up and I'd be like, I need to get to that bike. And I've used those goals when I've been at the worst in my life to drive me and to get me going because I've, I've had to learn to walk now four times. Yes. And that's pretty, that's pretty challenging when you put all that work in and you, you get to the pinnacle of fitness to then have it taken all away from you to only know that you're going to wake up again after a nine, 10 hour surgery and have to start all over again. And that that's happened four times in 10 years. So that that's been pretty tiring on me. Um, and then that's why sleep's so important. Good food's so important. The, the breathing's so important. Looking after all those little things. But I think to be honest with you, if I hadn't come at this from a holistic way, I think I would have burnt out years ago and I would have been, I would have been either on the street homeless or I would have, I might not even be alive. Actually, I would go as far as say I probably wouldn't be alive today if I hadn't come at it from a very holistic, far Eastern approach. Yeah. How, how is, I mean, it's not only, 
your your family and friends and so on. I mean, how how is how they helped you and how I mean impact from from them uh, on you and vice versa because you've lived with this for so long that it's kind of you know drawn a lot of people into it. How, how has that uh, shaped you? That's probably the hardest part because all the work I do to manage myself is you can say that it's maybe selfish. Some athletes are selfish, you know, it's very much about them getting to bed at the right time, them eating the right foods to win medals. And I've taken a lot of that in, into this and it's, it's hard for me then to manage their emotions because then you feel like you have to manage everyone around you. And because you're learning all this stuff, you're like, well, I know all this stuff. I need to share it with my mom, my dad, you know, my, my girlfriend, my friend, my cousin, all these people around you. And they're, they're maybe not, they're not aware of it. So they're, I can see they're highly stressed. You know, when my mom's next to my hospital bed, I've heard doctors say to her, look, you need to go home. You're, you're, you're too stressed. And I can feel her energy because I've become so in tune with my body and the energy fields around me. Even when I'm lying with my eyes shut on my hospital bed, I can feel my mum's panic next to me, which then starts to get me panicked. Um, so it's, that's been the hardest thing to manage people. And then also with the spinal cord injury, you rely on people all the time you know, to tie my shoelace to maybe help me wash. I can't wash myself properly. So you, you rely on this all the time. And it's, it's quite hard to to have that reliant on other people and you don't want to feel like a burden. And that's one thing with the spinal injury. I've, there's times where I really do feel like a burden and I feel me spiraling out of control and being like, well, there's no point in living. This is, this is rubbish. And at that point, that's where I catch myself and I say, okay, that person needs a little bit of a break from me. And I maybe need to go and get on my bike or, you know, I'm, go I'm going to take up surfing. Actually, I'm going to go and teach and learn how to surf. So that's going to be another thing where I think connecting with nature, connecting with the sea. What I realized when I was diving was that gravity is not such an issue. So I could move. And I thought, wow, being in the water is just so beautiful. And, and, and I thought, I'm going, to, I'm going to go and learn how to surf because that, that's been, again, it's fulfilling that spiritual side. Yeah, that 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 is uh, that is amazing to hear that you you're, you're constantly trying to find uh, new ways to kind of uh, improve yourself or find ways to uh, yeah feel better, or just uh, feel alive. And I, and I think most people they just kind of wander uh, through life, uh, pushing it to next day or next month. Or but you you actually have goals and you, you, you take these initiatives despite of uh, everything where maybe, maybe you uh, maybe would have been best sometimes not to do it. So I think that is, uh, that is absolutely amazing to hear. But I think Daniel, uh, something interesting here as well is even though, and David, correct me if, if I'm wrong, you, you set goals, but your entire focus is not on necessarily achieving the, the goal your focus seems to be very much on the process, the having your attention on doing what you need to do. Um, and that's a big difference because a lot of people will set a goal and they're in such a race to achieve that role, that goal that they don't have their attention on what they are doing. And once they achieve the goal, they may not be satisfied because the goalposts have moved and now they are chasing something else. 
and are constantly jumping to the future as opposed to, yes, set the goal, but have your attention in the present moment and have your focus on doing what you're doing. And the chances are that you achieve the goal because you have a better quality of focus on the here and now. Yeah, I made that mistake actually up until I was paralyzed. Um, even when I went to the games and world championships and stuff as a roar, it was all about the outcome, the outcome, the outcome. And I missed all those beautiful sessions at 7 a.m. when you're, the boat's moving through the water and the sun's rising. And, you know, at that point, it was just like, get through the session because we're one step closer to a world title. And it wasn't until I was paralyzed where I actually, I guess, in a lot of ways, became alive again. I realized how important it is to, to savor these moments. And that's where my philosophy changed. My philosophy changed rather about being a, a champion. It became about being where my feet were and just being present. And okay, I, if, if I don't reach those goals, it doesn't really matter. No one's died. It's not, it's not a great thing. That the, the, the biggest releases of dopamine are in the anticipation of going after something. So I, I set them. I feel this rush of energy. Then I, it gets me going. It gets me involved in things. It gets me moving. But if I never cross the finish line or never reach that goal, I'm okay with that. It's, 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 it's fine. It's, it doesn't really matter. It's, it, what the goal's done is it's, it's given me something to drive towards. But I always keep saying to myself, we, we only own right now. We don't own tomorrow. We don't own you know, a year from now. We can only really be present and that's why I realized so so much in hospital that you see you see a lot of these athletes you know they might win like eight Olympic medals you know I think even Michael Phelps had depression <laughs> you know after having and everyone's looking thinking why wow, you've achieved all that but if it's not aligned with your values and you don't really understand you know the philosophy behind it then of course you're never going to be satisfied and you're constantly searching for this thing that's going to feel great and then you get there and it's like, oh, okay, it doesn't, my life's no different. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, you, you know, my life's no different with an Olympic medal than without one. <laughs> you, you, I know you, you had a video where you had a letter to my younger self where you kind of, I think you brought up a few of these points. Uh, we've had this recurring thing with other podcasters, and it, but you're, you're taking it to a, a different level. Uh, if you talk to yourself, before all these surgeries, I know you had a lot of issues before. Would because now you said you weren't really always in the present moment. Do you think if you reversed it and say somebody, your future self in ten years, looking back to you now, mm. would that be somebody who, who like right now you're in the present moment a lot more than let's say twenty years ago? I, I yeah, I, I've I've got to be. If not, I know the other side of that coin, and that other side of that coin is a dark place to be. There's not a day, I actually did a psychological review a few weeks ago for something I'm involved in at the moment, and he really peeled back the layers of the onion, and he discovered that there's a lot of, there's not, I don't want to be paralyzed, for sure. I, I, I would give, I'd give everything I have away to wake up tomorrow with my limbs and my health. If, even if that meant I woke up with no clothes lying on the street somewhere, and I had to, I literally struggle massively with the paralysis not so much the cancer the cancer the tumor is what it is and i and because i'm fit and healthy i can deal with the tumor the paralysis is something that is 24 hours a day with the tumor i only ever dealt with it when i needed to deal with it but the paralysis is like 24 hours i'm constantly having to live with this paralysis 
and it's put such restrictions on my life that I really struggle. And I think if I was to to look to the future, to write back and, and say it would be like, you've got to be present. And it's probably more important now than ever because if I spend too much time living in my head, then I'm going to be living with this, like, I don't want to be paralyzed. I want to go and do all these mm. things and I can't do them. And then, uh, and, I'm, and I know I'm just going to get so tense where I think, okay, before the surgery, if there was 10,000 things I could do, now I can only do a thousand. Let's focus on those thousand things, not the 9,000 things I couldn't do before. David, you mentioned a couple of times that you bring your attention into your feet. Can you just elaborate on that just for listeners that maybe want to have a small technique? It's not necessarily focusing on the breath, but what do you do to take your attention into the body? Yeah, so all I do basically is I, do, I just use that mental cue. I just say, David, be where your feet are. And that is you bring your stop. attention. Into yeah, your I bring feet. my attention to my feet. And I just, so if I'm, if I'm sort of getting a little bit stressed, a little bit panicked and starting to feel a little bit of anxiety, I just say, David, be where your feet are. And because I've worked so hard on that philosophy, I, I start when I first wrote that philosophy, Patrick, it was in hospital in 2016 and it was about, over a page long and then I got it down just to that so what it did is I wrote all this stuff about what it was like to be paralyzed you know the, the sensation the highlight of my day was having a bed bath and getting a new pajama put on mm-hmm. and that was the highlight of my day I, I was so happy and I never wanted to forget that feeling when I went into the normal world and was searching for more searching for more I want this I want that I'm good. I won't be happy until I go and ride 100 kilometers or get a new bike or whatever. So when I say be where my feet are, that triggers so many neural pathways in my brain that take me all the way back to what it was like just to have a bed bath and how grateful I was. So that's something that I've worked at very, very hard. So it might sound a little bit crazy to someone to say, it might not work for people if they just say, hey, be where my feet are. It, it might not connect them to such deeper things. So for me, when I started writing that philosophy, yeah, it was, I think it was over a thousand words the first time I wrote it. And then I just started to bring it down, bring it down and dissect it to eventually a cue that I could just say, be where my feet are. And it is a practice. It's not just a cue, but you're actually taking your attention into your feet and you're holding your attention there. You're feeling the sensations in your feet. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then what I do is I just feel, I feel my whole body and I try to connect to my whole body and how the sensations feel and, you know, what sensations do I have in my pinky? And it's mm. almost a little bit like yoga nidra in a way, but like an active version of it. And I found the more I do that, the more I have control over, over my breathing, over my heart rate variability, over my autonomic nervous system. And it just, it plays into everything. And I think it's, having all the pieces of jigsaw and just putting them all together on the table so that my mind stays away from growing old with a spinal cord injury, which is pretty scary. And also the continually having scans every six months. So I only really get to live my life every six months. So I need to make sure every day in those six months really counts. And that's why every morning I say, be where your feet are, because it takes me back to that hospital bed and having that bed bath. And it's just a shocking pity that society that we haven't embraced this as human beings, that yeah. it, we have to confront death before we start appreciating life. The very point that Daniel made at the start, 
you know, we, there's many things we've got incorrect and there's many things that we could learn from here. I think this is a wonderful interview, Daniel, probably one of our best. I don't want to say that, but um, I think it's absolutely wonderful. There's some nuggets here that are, you know, people can embrace them. I think it could be life-changing for some people. Well, it's funny when you mention death, because usually when you mention death, people freak out. People don't want to talk about death. But it, it's, again, it's, it's from the great philosophers. If you, you know, if you knew the day you were going to die... That would be would worse. You, yeah. <laughs> would, would, you, would you live today differently? And, and that's something I've always agreed with. I always think absolutely, because if you think you're going to live for a million years, then you just become a procrastinator. <laughs> Yeah, and you don't want you don't want to live for a million years either. That would be hell, absolutely hell. You know, it's probably good that we're only here for a brief period of time. And I don't want to put a negative on it, huh? No, I know, especially if you're married to the same person for a million years. <laughs> <laughs> That's <is> true. <laughs> so great stuff, to guys. Daniel. Uh, no, I, I mean it's just amazing, and and. Uh, uh, there are really a, a million questions that I would like to follow up at, at some point. And I'm just uh, uh, always when I find somebody like you, David, it's a, a, a really admire you as a person. It's a, it's a, but at the same time, it's very hard for us to put ourselves in your shoes because it's, it is impossible. But at the same time, I'm sure you inspire so many people around the world. And I know you have some of those videos where you put that out that, uh, you're doing things for other people so uh, uh, hopefully that helps you as well helping other yeah, people yeah well that, that's the thing you know and I, I remember I took a short course at Yale on Coursera which was the science of health and happiness from I think our professor Santos was her name and she spoke a lot about acts of kindness yeah and, and, and that and that's one thing I try to put in my in my life now whether it's daily or weekly of just having those acts of kindness and they can be through either inspiring people or helping people and so I, I get a lot from that. And I think that's where my philosophy's changed slightly from being this sort of trying to win an Olympic medal. It's actually being about, okay, how, how can I help other people learn from the stuff that I've gone through that, to make them better humans? And then they, on turn, they'll go and make better humans. And we're going to have a domino rally of just, of, and it's like the work that you guys do, you know, it, it helps so many people. And, and I think that it's such a rewarding thing to do. That's super. Yeah. I have one more request, David. Will you put your camera on and show us a glimpse yeah, yeah. of the sunshine? Yeah, sure, what, we're, sure. we're, what we're all seeking. Yeah, it's um, well, it's 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 a little bit overcast, but I'll uh, I'll just take you to the. So every every night I get to watch the, I get to watch the sunset, and um, I, I just watch it from, from. Let me just see. I've only got the one arm, so. So, so David is based in Jamaica, just in case anybody has just joined the, the podcast later on. And uh, it's the 25th of February. I'm in Ireland and yeah, not particularly nice weather. Daniel's in Sweden. And exactly here we nice. have, it's tonight, it's nice in Sweden. Here we have Jamaica. So that's so cool. So yeah, so this is, this is basically, yeah, I try not to sit and look at screens all day because that can be pretty stressful. So I, I make sure I turn them off. And I come out here onto the veranda. Uh, onto veranda, and I basically it's yeah, it's not sunny today, but it is yeah. it's still twenty eight degrees. Wow! And uh, I have the, dog, the dogs as well that are lovely. That are here, so I'm, I'm surrounded by nature, fresh fruit, yams, vegetables, mango trees. So it's um, yeah, yeah I, I can't complain. 
<laughs> wow. What an interview. Yep. Thanks very much, guys. Um, we're we're going to sign off. That was absolutely wonderful. <laughs>